electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the road ahead for stocks, making a nice move here as we come on the air with you. What the past events of this week mean for your money. Our investment committee, of course, tackling that key question right now. Joining me for the hour, Josh Brown, Steve Weiss. Brenda Vangelo, Jim Labenthal, Rich Saperstein with Hightower Treasury Advisors, also a Barron's Top 100 Financial Advisor. Good week to hear from Rich Saperstein. We'll get to all of the conversation about the markets and the Fed and everything else in just a moment. We do have some important business to take care of, and that is Josh Brown selling Schwab, which really, I don't know, I guess kind of surprised me, Josh. What's behind this? Don't be surprised, Judge. I, I could buy it back an hour from now. Uh, but it was, no, it was a good trade. I, when I went into it, I said, this is way overdone. It makes absolutely no sense. Schwab is a blue chip, one of the best companies in America on many levels, in addition to which we're a custody client. I have uh, uh, billions of dollars uh, at, at stake in this, in this debate. So uh, I knew it was a buy. It probably still is a buy. But anytime a stock has a run like that, and your intention is not to be a long-term investor, it's okay to take some off the table. So that's all I did. I mean, is that, you're, are you making any kind of a statement about, you know, where you see no, the financial no, no. sector going? This is just simply, you got in right, you feel like you're getting out right, plain and simple, wash the hands of it? Yeah, I'll buy it. If they, listen, if they want to panic, if they want to panic and start selling off some of these companies, uh, I'll, I'll take advantage, but in order to do that, I have to be ready to take advantage of it. So, yeah. Um, so the look, other, I, I don't, I'm not interested. I got to be honest with you. I'm not interested in like First Republic or whatever. Not because there's anything wrong with it. Um, it's a different situation. Schwab got basketed in with these regional banks, of which it is not one of them, and and uh, I knew it was suspect the way they were selling this thing off. It's a very very specific opportunity. I'm not a trader, I'm an investor, but this was something that came along and opportunistically I wanted to take advantage of it. Okay, uh, we're, we're seeing those shares tick a bit lower uh, as we have this conversation. Now, you mentioned First Republic, which is sinking again today, which brings me to Jim Labenthal, who bought this on Monday, thinking you were getting in at, at an opportune time. Now what? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I want to start off by saying to everybody who's in this stock, this is a speculative stock now, okay? So you have to be prepared that this could go to zero. If you're not prepared for that, sell it right here, right now, okay? Now, I am not selling it. Let me be very clear. But I'm, I'm not selling it, and I'm making that decision based on an analysis of the financial statements, which includes looking down to how much do they have in liquid assets to cover deposit outflows. And based on their backing from J.P. Morgan, they can cover more than two-thirds of deposit outflows, which I think is far more than they would see. Um, I think, however, the reason this is speculative is because we've seen a run on the bank can happen to anyone. 
and it is, of course, possible that more than two-thirds of their deposits leave. But that should not be what happens. It should not be what the regulators want, unless they want really the regional banking system in general to just fold into the overall you, you large regret, banking system. You regret buying this stock when you did? Um, you know, it's easy to say that today when it's down. Well, because so, you made such an impassioned case about buying it. You know, it's a great bank. It's, I mean, you yeah. use those kinds of so, words when you described why you did it and in yeah. telling people why you thought it was so unjustly getting hit to the magnitude <coughs> it was. Here's, here's why I don't regret it, Scott. What I like doing, I'm even going to go so far as to say I love doing, is looking at balance sheets and finding a dollar's worth of value selling for 50 cents. That's what I look to do every day. It's not always that obvious to me. Now, let me be clear. From a financial statement analysis, I think this bank is worth far more than it is today. So from that point of view, I don't regret it. What I do, I'm not going to say regret, but what I'm vexed by is the sentiment, which clearly matters in the stock and the markets here. On that, I'll close on this point. Sentiment, not just on stocks like First Republic, but the markets overall, is whipsawing back and forth. Yesterday, we're down. Today, we're up. The day before that, we were up. It's whipsawing all around. So I'm just going to go back to what I do, which is financial statement analysis, and say I'm comfortable owning the stock from there. I don't regret it. Okay. So Brenda Bangello is here um, for the first time in three years in person, right? It's great to have you here. It's good to see you. So... You know, you were out on, in Palo Alto, right, mm-hmm. as all of this stuff was going down, and we talked to you about that, and here you are. And so what do you make of it now, right? You have Josh out of Schwab. You have Jim who bought First Republic. What do you make of what the market's doing at this moment? Well, I think regional banks play a really important role in our country, um, and not all of them are bad. Silicon Valley Bank had some very specific Uh, risks that were being taken, but they also had a run on the bank. (laughs) That's not a normal phenomenon. Um, And and also had a significant amount of uninsured deposits. So that's not the case with a lot of other regional banks. So I think to Jim's point, there are values that are going to materialize out there. But nevertheless, I think, especially in the region of the country that I'm from, which was ground zero between Silicon Valley Bank and then also concerns about First Republic and just what was happening with the stock market, two very trusted organizations that I think um, in many respects are going to cast a little bit of a shadow on on, on sentiment in our part of the world. Yeah. And I, I worry that it potentially it spills over onto the consumer side. You know, Jim nailed it when he said markets have been volatile and, and they've been volatile today. What's interesting as we pivot to that part of the conversation is what's happening at the moment where NASDAQ's leading us a higher, almost 2% for the NAS. Mega caps are doing well. You got everything in the green now. Um, week to date, you've got AMD and Meta and Google and Amazon, you know, best week since fill in the blank. Could be February, could be January, could be last November, uh, respectively, for some of these things. Rich Saperstein, so what do you make of the environment that, that we're now in and the kinds of stocks that are working, which not a lot of people I'm betting were positioned for a couple of weeks ago? Well, uh, having Weiss and I on at the same time, Scott, I hope it's not going to require one of us uh, to get bullish because it's certainly not going to be me. Uh, Last week, the market was worried about growth and inflation. Today, it's worried about recession and whether Powell's going to tighten or not. I think we have to look longer term and understand that the era of uh, ankle deep interest rates uh, is benefit. It masked. Uh, these companies that have uh, zero profits, uh, 
deteriorating credit fundamentals, uh, over leverage, and all the problems that are associated with them now that rates are higher. And so now that the Fed has moved rates up to knee deep, uh, you've got to look at companies that are generating free cash flow. And that's why the large cap tech is traveling very well, because these are the ones that are generating, uh, let's call it anywhere from four to 7% operating cash flows, have strong balance sheets, and that's why the NAS is outperforming the other indexes. You know, Weiss, to, to many, the signal here is that the mega cap defense trade is back, which we had talked about for so long, you know, really before the whole interest rate move by the Fed started a year ago today. Is that truly back? Well, it's back for now. It's been back for the last couple of weeks as, uh, as people go to where it's safe to go. And just adding to, to, to Rich's comments, the other issue is that positive for these companies is that with fewer VCs able to get funding, and I just spent three days out in San Francisco talking to a bunch of them, few of them that are going to survive, that a competitive threat from new technology has diminished somewhat. Additionally, they're getting more, uh, they're getting leaner. So everything's working in their favor. And the question is, the only question is at this point, is it sustainable from a stock performance standpoint? On a relative performance basis, I believe they will continue to outperform because they are cash cows uh, with increasing profitability on their models. So yes, but the question is, is can you get them cheaper? And I believe you can. Google's the only one I've added to recently. I bought it uh, lower, and uh, I'm trying to capitalize on that because it's also a hedge for me because I'm so bearish, have so few, so little exposure that I want to have some in case I'm wrong. Um, but overall, yeah, I think you'll continue to see those hold up relative to the others, and that's the critical see, point. What does you, relative to the others mean? You've made the point, though, exactly what you just said as part of that last comment there that. Well, I, I think I can get Microsoft cheaper, so I'm not going to buy it here. You know, that, those are the kind of statements that you've, you've been making. And I yeah. wonder if now you're questioning that just because of what happened over the weekend, where we are now, the focus on cash flow and, you know, what you thought wasn't going to work and you could get cheaper may just have changed as a result of this environment that has changed in its own way. I'm not questioning it in the least, number one. Number two, if I'm wrong, I don't care because I don't have to own Microsoft at any point in my, in my career, my life, period. I don't have to own any of those others. There'll be plenty to buy where I'll have a much better return at lower prices. I mentioned Deere yesterday. Deere got down to, to 388. Um, I think I'll get it lower as you have concerns because guess what? It's more expensive to buy a piece of farm equipment with rent going up. Uh, inflation is going to die down somewhat eventually, so farmers won't get as much for their crops. So no, I have zero regrets about it because the number one, the number one tenant, far and above, the next one is probably ranked number ten, is preserving capital. So I have zero regrets. So Josh, what do you make of the move that we've seen in in some of these big cap names? Right, Meta best week since February third. Google best week since November. Amazon best week since January. This is going to be controversial. Um, 
I think these are state these are consumer staples. They just happen to be digital. But like is anything more staply that you could think of than Amazon? Like from an e-commerce standpoint, maybe not from a cloud usage standpoint. It's pretty staply to me. It's a supermarket. It's uh it's a five and dime. Um, can you think of anything more staply, let's say, than uh, Alphabet's core business? 97% of their revenue is, is some version of search. Do people search less in a recession? Probably not. Maybe ad budgets are smaller, but you could argue that's been priced in. So these are companies with huge amounts of cash. If you're worried about the economy, you don't have to worry about their wherewithal to pay their debts and their bills and survive. Um, as Weiss pointed out, they're, they're getting leaner. They're benefiting from the fact that fewer upstart competitors are going to be funded to the degree that they were, let's say, two years ago. Um, and so that competitive threat maybe lessens. And in the end, I don't think consumer behavior really changes much in terms of how time is spent digitally. You got way bigger worries with traditional cyclicals. So I know we don't normally think about tech giants as being either defensive or, or mm -hmm. offensive, um, but I think they're acting in a fairly defensive way right now, and I'm not really that surprised by it. Yeah, Brent, I mean, you've got a lot of exposure here, right? Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Meta, right in the thick of it. We do. I think the other element, though, is that interest rates have come down and it's looking like the, the end of the interest rate cycle may be as early as next week. Uh, we don't know that yet, but I think that comes into play in a big way with the many of these names where there was still a lot of concern about multiples being a little extended relative to other parts of the market. That's not true for every stock within the group. You know, certainly there are opportunities like a Google, for example, which is trading at a lower multiple. But nevertheless, I, I think the combination of the fundamental backdrop now, as, as has been mentioned, with perhaps fewer um, startups um, nipping at their heels, uh, companies that are focusing now more on profitability than really ever before in the last 10 years, in my mind, that's important. And I think that has all contributed to these stocks working. You know, Rich Saperstein, let's, let's get to the question of the moment now. And, and it's really the question on everybody's mind. What's the Fed going to do next week? What do you think they do? They can't abandon the inflation fight. Uh, and in some ways, uh, Powell is in between a, uh, a Volcker inflation fight. And, and by no way I'm making comparison of the banking crisis with 08, but Bernanke's challenge with the banks right now. Uh, the Fed has to tighten. They have to continue their uh, inflation fight. Uh, but I don't think the Fed is really the big driver here. I think we have to really focus on interest rates. And if you go back and look at uh, the last three tightening periods, 2016 to 18, 04 to 7, and 99 to 2000, at all times, the two-year Treasury led the Fed higher. And at all times, when the two-year Treasury broke below Fed funds, that marked the peak of the interest rate cycle. We just saw in the last 30 days, the two-year treasury drop below the Fed funds rate. So if you go back to the last three tightening periods and correlate that with the situation now, we're in for a lower interest rate environment. Now, as you know, we're underweight equities and we're overweight long-term bonds. And it's a strategy that we would continue to apply regardless of whether the Fed tightens or not uh, next week.
Why does, why does next week have anything to do with using your words, abandoning the fight on inflation or not? One, one meeting's worth of moves is the ultimate decider on that, rather than just pausing and taking a look around like many suggest that, that they should do now. Eric Rosengren, former Boston Fed Prez, interest rates should pause until the degree of demand destruction can be evaluated. And he's talking about demand destruction from the events of the last handful of days. Why does, why does pausing have anything to do with abandoning their fight on inflation? Well, as a market guy, last week, markets were concerned the Fed was going to go 50. Now, if they pause, the market's going to possibly think, wow, we have a systemic banking crisis on our hands and the Fed's really stepping back to worry about our financial system. So, look, you think that would be negative in the eyes of the stock market? Very much could be. Sure. I know that's interesting you put that forward because because that's what Jeremy Siegel was telling me yesterday in Closing Bell. Listen to Jeremy Siegel from the Wharton School. They suddenly go zero. It could worry the market. Oh, my goodness. I mean, they're giving up on that. Are they so worried about the economy that everything they voice and all the opinions they've had over the last six months are now throwing aside? I think a more measured way of doing is 25 with a pause. Josh, you were saying you'd take the other side of that? That's ahistorical. I'm surprised that the professor um, does is not on the side that I'm on, which is every time there's been some sort of massive exogenous event that's affected the stock and bond markets in the middle of a rate hike cycle, the Fed has not only paused, but in many pronounced cases has actually done some interim cuts. The, my first summer in the business, 1998, uh, the blow up of long term capital, the, the Russian ruble melting down, et cetera, um, the, the Fed actually not only paused uh, in the midst of a rate hiking cycle that had been taking place pretty much consistently throughout the whole decade of the 90s, but they cut. And that was the end of that market moment. They ended up tightening again soon after. Was not the peak of rates for the cycle, but was a pause in the middle. 1987 is an even better example. You got three successive rate cuts. Um, the, 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 the sentiment, the market repaired itself. And then by the following year, they were back to hiking again. To me, that's more realistic that we see that pause. And by the way, if the Fed is so concerned about its credibility, nothing would help establish their credibility more than to make a change when something big occurs. And I would argue two bank failures and a third possibly by the end of this week is something big enough that the Fed would earn credibility if they acknowledge by doing something different than what their rhetoric was 10 days ago before this all started. That's how you get credibility. Demonstrate to the market that you're actually paying attention. I'm with Josh on this. Uh, let, let's just this. this I get idea, you in a second, Weiss. I get you in a second. I promise. This idea that the market okay. will interpret a pause as they know something that we don't. Uh, look, I'm not just purposely being inflammatory, but they've already shown they don't know anything more than us. I mean, really. On Wednesday of last <laughs> Thank week, you. Jay Powell was saying, exactly, was saying that the banking system is in great shape. So we can just throw that one out. The other thing that I would point out here is that it's highly likely if they raise 25 basis points that that's the hike they're going to take out. So to Josh's point, 
that, you know, if you want your credibility, how, how much damage would it do if they raise 25 basis points and within a month remove it? Uh, if they know anything, Stupid. it's what we know, is that, that the banking system is on a precipice here and it does not have to go over it. Weiss? First of all, let's separate stock action from reality. The banking system is not in a crisis, okay? The banking system is absolutely fine. You had one company that's a unique company that got way over its skis, that had extremely poor risk management, and that's what drove it, okay? Risk management drove it to the decline, not the Fed, okay? Number one. Number two, credibility is in the eyes of the beholder. And look, if the Fed says we're not going, we're pausing, of course the market will trade up, okay? Because the bulls look for any data point in a sea of negative data points to go and buy stocks, put more money at risk, and eventually see that money atrophy somewhat. So to me, the Fed's got one job here. It's not supporting equity markets. They could care less about the equity markets. We've heard that time and time again. That's reality. They care about one thing, and that's inflation. And whether the Fed pauses now or not, that's still the bigger game. And the bigger game in terms of the equity markets is what the impact of the tightening policy to date has been. And I can tell you, you it's not clearly coming down. with Silicon Valley Bank. They, they care about What's financial that? stability. Nothing they though. do next week. Nothing they do next week will impact inflation for at least for at least for at least six to 12 months. So what they do next week has absolutely Josh, nothing Josh, to do you. with the Fed fighting inflation. Inflation is coming here's down. Where I think, look, look, wait, hold look, on. Weiss, here's ahead. where I think you could Weiss, be wrong, go ahead. okay? Weiss, okay go here's, ahead. Where, here's where I think you can be wrong. They're creating easier lending conditions. To Richard's point, okay, you've now seen rates come down that's not at a comfortable level for the Fed to be at. Their goal is not to bring down rates. Forget about the equity markets. Equity markets don't matter to the Fed. It's the credit markets that matter. And you've eased credit conditions significantly. So the 25 basis points will send the message back there that, hey, we want tighter credit. Rich? Look, it's important to watch the Fed, obviously. But I think it's more important to watch the plumbing in the system, where we have negative M2 growth, we have deteriorating credit uh, fundamentals. Banks are going to tighten lending standards. Consumer borrowing to, to, to fund uh, consumption is increasing. Commercial industrial loans are overdue. And we have a slowing economic environment. And as investors, I think it's more important to look at the fundamentals that are going on here. And we're ultimately going to get lower interest rates and more breakage in the system. We've seen the British pension plan blow up, BREIT, SREIT. Uh, crypto. Uh, now we've got two banks that have blown up. These are all emblematic of the system that we're in right now, the dynamic change in the monetary environment. Now, we can all talk about the Fed, but the fact is that the economy is slowing and stock margins and earnings are going to be under pressure. And we're going to see a lower stock market this year. I'm going to make that the last word for this segment. Good place to leave it. Up next, we'll do our call of the day. Semis up more than 20% since the start of the year. What one firm is saying now about the sector's next move. We'll debate it. Halftime's back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. 
which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back. Let's talk semiconductors. There's some on your list right there. Why? Because Susquehanna today, they call the bottom. They're calling the bottom on semis. We believe the acute portion of the semiconductor down cycle for the handset PC and consumer end markets has passed. That's from their note. So Intel, I don't know what's passed there. It's not better. It's just not worse, they say. But we'll move on because nobody has ownership there. We do have ownership of Qualcomm, Jimmy, which they have taken from neutral to positive. They go to 140, 20% upside from here. Talk to me. I can't separate this call from the recession or no recession call. I can't intellectually do it. So I'm looking for Susquehanna to say, besides the fact that they think the mobile handset market is bottom, that they think the economy is going to grow again. Now, so it's binary for that. chips. If you think we're having a recession, bad for chips. If you don't, good for chips. I do. And, and, and look, I mean, maybe Qualcomm, maybe the handset gets better just because it's been so lousy. But, you know, that's just going to mean it's like the, the best shirt in a, dirt, in a bag of dirty laundry if you get a recession. Well, I mean, you, you still I don't, don't think, think we're going to get, get one? one. I, look, look, let, so thank you. I think the odds have obviously increased with what's happened over the last week. I'm not a dummy in that regard. I do still think there's a reasonable path to a soft landing here. It requires actions from the Fed that we already discussed. If they do that, there is enough cushion in this economy. Look at jobless claims. I know it's backward looking. Look at where GDP estimates are. I know it's backward looking. But there's enough cushion in this economy to withstand the lagged effects uh, of what the Fed's done. And if that's the case, then, yeah, handsets and PCs should pick back up from Pretty low trough levels. Bren, what about NVIDIA, which which you are not mentioned specifically in this note, but it's been, you know, the outperformer for certain. It has. And, you know, and I think that's really because when we look at NVIDIA's business, they are so innovative. There are clear growth uh, avenues, uh, despite what might be happening in the, in the broader economy. Mm -hmm. And they're working through inventory problems that they had had. But I do worry about this call in general, because I think it's it's ignoring the fact that the economy could start to slow and you could start to see demand slow just as the inventory problems are resolving themselves um, and potentially getting worse as more supply starts coming online later. Uh, Rich Zapperstein, um, dangerous time to make this kind of a call for, for such a economically sensitive part of the tech universe? Well, <clears throat> we really uh, never really owned any chip stocks. And then after I read uh, Chip Wars by, chip, by uh, Chris Miller, I realized that I'm really rarely ever going to own 
uh, chip stocks. It's a uh, it's a globally competitive business and uh, long and large capex involvement uh, with little uh, payoff. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of the industry. Josh Brown, you're you know as identifiable with Nvidia as anybody else for certain. Yeah, but Nvidia is very far outside the scope of this particular call, which is about handsets. Um, right. Nvidia lives in its own on its own on its own planet. It's a highly volatile stock. Um, it's up 87 percent over the last six months, but that's because of the degree to which it got killed in in uh, most of 2022. Um, the stock is an outperformer. It has been for a long time on almost every time frame. But you have to live through some blood curdling moments here. Um, I agree with what Jim said. If the economy is not going to recover this year or is going to get worse, you probably, broadly speaking, do not want to have a lot of semiconductor exposure because mm-hmm. these are highly cyclical names. Every single part of the uh, of this of the sector, from the chips themselves to the the capital equipment names. Um, so you have to be really optimistic about global growth to want to like get very excited about the semis. And I personally am not. All right. Yeah, I'm glad you made the distinction too about this call. In terms of bottoming, it's consumer PC and handset. They say that industrial and auto have yet to correct. That brings NXP to my mind, yeah. which Jim owns as well. So I'm, I'm glad you did that. I should have mentioned that off the top. European markets, they are closing for I'm the always day. here for you. Thank you. Let's get to CNBC's Juliana Tattlebaum. She's live in our London newsroom with more on that close. Juliana. Scott, how are you? Um, markets breathe a sigh of relief today in Europe after the drama at Credit Suisse yesterday drove European stocks 3% lower. Today, not only were investors digesting the fallout from Credit Suisse, but also the European Central Bank meeting today and delivering a 50 basis point rate hike. That was ultimately in line with what they intended and what the market was expecting. And initially, investors weren't sure what to do. We had very choppy trade throughout the press conference, but ultimately, into the close, we've seen stocks rally. Looking at the banks specifically, we'd swung between gains and losses throughout much of the day, but ultimately, the banking stocks ending firmly higher. The bank's index up more than 1%. Credit Suisse shares closing 20% higher after the Swiss National Bank, of course, stepped in with that liquidity backstop late yesterday. Outside of the banks, the worst performing sectors in Europe today, basic resources, oil and gas, and telecoms, the only three actually to end in negative territory. On the upside, travel and leisure, tech, retail, household goods performing quite well alongside the financial names. Scott? All right. Juliana, thank you so much. That's Juliana Tattlebaum in our London newsroom for you live. Coming up, energy is among the worst performers today. However, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway taking advantage of the pullback, buying more of a stock he has loved. We'll debate it next. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. French President Emmanuel Macron is bypassing lawmakers and using a special constitutional power to impose a controversial increase in the country's retirement age to 64 from 62. The move came just before a vote in the National Assembly where opponents reacted with rage as Macron's move has been uh, seen as controversial. In Israel, protesters again blocking roads and skirmished with police after Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a compromise that would have uh, scaled back his plan to weaken the country's judiciary. And China, Iran and Russia are conducting joint naval exercises in the Gulf of Oman near the entrance to the strategic Persian Gulf's China's defense uh, ministry, saying they are designed to deepen practical cooperation among the navies of the three countries. The White House says the U.S. will be watching, but it is not particularly concerned because, quote, nations train. We do it all the time. Scott, back to you. All right, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi. Occidental Petroleum moving higher again today. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway buying more stock, bringing their stake to more than 23%. Rich Saperstein, you own Oxy. You got Chevron, Exxon, Marathon, your overweight energy, but Oxy's the one I want you to hit first. Well, obviously they have a, a, a concentration in shale in the U.S., so it makes them geopolitically less uh, at risk. But the, the big feature here is uh, an operating cash flow at uh, current oil prices of over 30% and a free cash flow of over 25%. So they're going to be returning capital to shareholders. Buffett still has the uh, preferred, and uh, their debt right now is around $15 billion. Uh, so it's really going to go down to around roughly one times leverage. So you have a very clean balance sheet, strong cash flow, and it's a typical Buffett name. I like the name. Yeah. Jimmy, how close are you watching what's happening with oil prices? We hit a low of 65 bucks, yep. north, a little north of that. We're at 68 now. And I, I ask you that because, you know, Mark Fisher gave me a call a little while ago and, and said, here's what I think's going on. He said everybody was short bonds and long oil. And that sort of has been blown out. Now no one wants to buy it with all the recession fears that are swirling around that there's a buyer strike and there's just no reason to jump in so, right at the moment. So listen, it's a great point. Mark Fisher is obviously the GOAT. If you talk to him, I'd really like his opinion on this. You know, the administration, the presidential administration has said, we're going to refill the SPR at prices of 67 to 72. Look where oil is 67. I mean, they should be refilling the SPR. They sold these barrels of oil at $100. They could take a huge pat on the back, buy it back now at 67. They should be. I mean, and I mean, that's got to be the floor right here. Maybe it oil. will be. I mean, he said that oil should be bought in his mind, bought at 65 and sold at 85. OK. Now, when it got to 65, it was bought yeah. uh, a bit, but it's going to be in a range. Well, and the other aspect, of, OK, fine, that's a pretty wide range, you'll admit. Yeah, it is a wide um, range. I mean, you can make a lot of money in that range. Yeah. And by the way, China's reopening. It is. Uh, Europe's not uh, not done with uh, its problems with energy. It's going to be buying fossil fuel. I, I just don't see the supply demand imbalance globally as having gone away. Brenda, how about you? You and Chevron, Chenier? We do, although we don't have an overweight in the group. You know, really, if you look at the performance from last year, it was tremendous. The stocks are cheap. But our view is, you know, in our view, you really need to have that incremental supply uh, come online in order to drive these stocks higher um, and make a, a case for a significant move higher. And we just can't make that case right now. Fundamentals, I think, are still going to be healthy, free cash flow. Generation is going to be positive. They're going to be paying down debt, returning cash to shareholders, all those good things. But it's just 
having that incremental move higher versus last year in our mind, it's just hard to make a case. Josh, you got both sides of this deal, right? You got you got Berkshire, right? You, you've been an investor in Berkshire Hathaway for a, for a long time. Next era in the oil and gas ETF, the IEO. Yeah, look, I, I think one of the most interesting things that comes out of the last few years and all of the imbalances globally um, on on trade, on on raw materials, commodities, labor, uh, the energy thing is really interesting. I think an entire generation spent 10 years being brainwashed into the idea that there was no money to be made, all the shale stuff was uh, deflationary, and uh, this sector was going to disappear because it didn't jive with the ESG agenda. Therefore, no institutional investors would ever own any of these stocks. That all changed on a dime last year. Best performing sector, still looking pretty good this year, although the commodity prices themselves are down. Um, but I think energy and renewable energy will be an enduring investment theme, uh, almost regardless of what happens in the economy in the near term. And so I remain interested in various areas here. NEE happens to be one of my favorite plays uh, because it's also bundled with a utility. So you've got the, the dividend and the safety along with the upside in the, in the renewable energy at scale types of projects. All right. Still ahead, we are gearing up for FedEx earnings and overtime tonight. Transport stocks have been outperforming the broader market this year. Well, we'll see what happens now. We'll find out how the committee is positioning next. We're back. FedEx reports in overtime tonight. Take a look at the stock moving nicely higher into that report up 3%. Brenda, you got UPS. You don't have FedEx. Why do you prefer that one over this? Yeah, our preference is UPS because of the focus on profitability that the CEO has instilled more recently and the fact that they own um, all of their own uh, distribution side. They have a lot. UPS has more exposure to Amazon, but I think in order for Amazon to push UPS out, they would need to invest more in their infrastructure. And mm -hmm. we just don't think the company's in a position to do that right now. So we prefer UPS. Over hey, Weiss, did you own FedEx at one point, which, by the way, got upgraded today at Stiefel? Price target goes to 222 from 171. I did own FedEx a while ago, and FedEx was cheap then. Guess what? It's, it's still cheap now. Uh, I don't have a lot of confidence in the quarter, by the way. You've seen freight rates come down. I mean, they've, they've crashed. You know, they're down 70, 80 uh, percent. While GXO had a good quarter, their same store volumes were, were basically flat. And they do both uh, reverse logistics and, and logistics. So it's a good window. So I think it's just going to be a challenged area going forward. They did get rid of Amazon about a year ago. They do have a new CEO, but they've perennially missed quarters. You would think that they kitchen sink the last few quarters, but you could have thought that a year ago as well. So I'm staying on the sidelines on this very economically sensitive. I'd rather not be there. All right. Up next, Mike Santoli has his midday word. We are right back. We're back. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli on set with us now for his midday word. I guess you could say that ECB gives the Fed a little bit of a cover if they want to go, but yeah. six days is still a long way away to figure out what happens between now and then. Yeah, it absolutely is. Whether it's cover or whether it was a little bit of a test, 
Let's see if the markets can swallow this a half point, and that might be slightly encouraging. Um, so I think this bounce that we're getting today is going to be respected but not celebrated as it stands right now. I say that because it remains kind of top-heavy, even though the pressure came off the banks when we got those headlines about First Republic. It's still kind of a, a, a NASDAQ megas type thing uh, that's leading the way here, 60% upside volume. So in other words, it's just kind of bobbed back up to exactly the, the high from earlier in the week as well as Friday's high. So I think it's, uh, it's somewhat range-bound on that score. And just in terms of the mega caps, Microsoft and Alphabet are up 10% each this week. Yep. That's $320 billion of market cap added. The entire, as I mentioned yesterday, the entire regional banks at, in the S&P, $200 billion. Right? So that, that tells you how you can kind of cover for your mistakes and your weak spots. And I don't say that to mean it's not legitimate or it's somehow artificial. That's how the market rotates away from danger, you know, and kind of keeps itself supported. It just can't stretch that way for, for long. You know, you can't be Microsoft's got to go up 10 percent every week in order to keep the market together. But it, it does at least g- give you an idea of how various parts of the market are viewed as safety Haven. trades Absolutely. or defensive yeah. by nature. And you could be optimistic about it and say, OK, maybe this turmoil bought us a Fed pause earlier than we thought, as I've been saying. And or, um, you know, you've actually given the chance for the rest of the market to pull back and get oversold and rest a little bit. OK, thank you. We'll see you in a little bit. A couple hours uh, for your last yes. word. That's Mike Santoli. We're back after this. And uh, I think we've got some news coming up, too, that uh, you don't want to go anywhere uh, for. All right, when David Faber comes to the set, you know there's important news to share. What do we know? Yeah, Scott, been working on this First Republic story, of course, as you know, uh, trying to understand exactly what is going on there. Uh, and it's an interesting potential rescue, if you want to call it that. But what I have been hearing uh, in the last uh, half hour or so involves a group of financial institutions. Let's call them that. It includes uh, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, City. Bay, J.P. Morgan. You want to go through a lot of names, we can go through a lot of potential names here. By the way, this is not done, but it would be a large deposit, essentially, from all of them, billions, perhaps, from each of them, into First Republic. Not a bailout of the bank, not a purchase of the bank, but simply deposits, uninsured deposits, obviously, given they're all over 250000 done as a sign of confidence, essentially, to show real confidence in the institution in the hopes that this would stem any further deposit uh, flight from First Republic and put it in a position to continue business as usual. Certainly one would expect if this deal does go through, it would be seen as a positive. Now, remember, First Republic had $70 billion in liquidity it lined up very recently. Apparently not, not been enough. I talked about a $25 billion hole in the balance sheet. I've continued to hear that. That, in part, is one of the problems or one of the reasons why you would not see a potential sale of said company, because on any change in control, you have to mark down even the held to maturity portfolio. Uh, and therefore, you have to take a big hit to your own book value were you to buy it. Treasury, the Fed are involved with this conversation, again, with many of these financial institutions that would be making... An overall deposit, I've been told, would be in the $20 billion range, perhaps more. This is all a moving target, mm-hmm, Scott, mm-hmm. in terms of what the number would actually look like. It's kind of an unusual potential uh, way to try to rescue an institution. In some ways, it's reminiscent almost of, the, of long-term capital a little bit way back when, but it would just be deposits. It right. would not be a preferred. It would not be them buying equity. 
um, or anything like that. It'd just be, here, we're going to give you a few billion dollars. We all are. We're big names. We're all good. And you're going to be good, too. Stocks halted, um, quite obviously, as this news is, is developing. And you can yeah. see it's had recovered from its lowest levels yes. of the day. You know, the initial reports were JPM and Morgan Stanley. What does it say to you overall that it's everybody, essentially? Everybody coming in together, putting their arms around First Republic in a sense and right. saying, we got your back. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's seen as a positive. It, it's, you know, again, with the help potentially of Fed and Treasury getting this together, none of them are giving up that much. It's not as, they're not even, frankly, they, they think they're money good, although they're uninsured deposits. Um, and it does speak to the difficulty of getting a deal like this done for any of the banks. When I've been talking to those that have been seen as potential individual buyers, they've talked about the negative equity at First Republic, the fact that they really don't want to go there without potentially help from, uh, from the federal government in some fashion, some sort of at least help on the on the capital side or, uh, and so forth. Well, your report's moving and, the stock. Yeah, quite, well, quite it, obviously, which is back open. It should, you know, listen, well, a lot of what we were hearing earlier, and again, I've confirmed my $25 billion number, was uh, the idea that, well, maybe the company's not going to be able to continue as such, and therefore you're going to have uh, a bad outcome here. Doesn't mean you won't still, but this is seen as a real potential positive way to build confidence and simply say this bank will go on on its own. And so, yes, you could see it as certainly a positive for the stock. Yeah, it's halted given, again, by, by the way. I mean, this is the yeah, way this, this, is all price this moves, works yeah. because of um, the volatility in it. This man over here, you know, on Monday, bought shares in, in First Republic, yeah. thinking that it had gone down too much. When you hear of David's reporting here, as he said, there's no guarantee of anything. <laughs> and by the way, yeah, this has not happened yet. I got it. This is still the, yeah. the hope and the plan, but it hasn't actually happened. You know, quite often in my seat and our seat, we, we think we know things, okay? And this is breathtaking, honestly. I can't say I know how this comes out. Because initially, when you hear Goldman Sachs is going to be in this, J.P. Morgan, what you think is they're just going to pillage the equity holders, right? However they do it, I mean... Honestly, I hear you, David, on they had, would have had to mark the book to market. I believe you. I, no reason to doubt you. But let's face it. These are the smartest investment bankers in the world. They would have figured out a way to take the equity in this company for $2 a share. You know what I'm referring to. They would have figured that out. So what are they doing here? I'm, and I'm, this is ad-libbing, all right? They're, they're building a firewall. They're building a firewall so that the forest fire doesn't escape from a contained portion of the banking system and burn down the whole forest. Period. Now, that's my 15-second take after hearing your story for three minutes. Yeah. Uh, well, again, the, the, uh, another positive, if this plan does come to fruition, Scott, is the idea that I think what Jim just mentioned, which is maybe this is the only one you got to deal with. So we deal with it. We, we put $20 billion in. Maybe it ends up being a bigger number in terms of deposits. Mm, right. By the way, this is not equity. Again, this is not. This is just, just deposits. It's like if you and I yeah. went today. Really today it's uninsured. And you decided to open up the Wapner Trust in a big a way. less than $25 yeah. billion. Dollars. But, uh, and said, yeah, but, you know, Scott Wapner and David Faber are <laughs> depositors, too. That's all. It's just done to, to engender confidence. Um, but maybe it will be enough. And to the extent that Fed and Treasury feel like this is the only one we have to worry about, that certainly could be a positive sign. Right. As long as, long as part of your, your point, as long as this fire is sort of burning, right. you got a problem, at least from a confidence level yes. in the system, or at least an important part of it. Right. Now, that said, if this doesn't, if this happens and it doesn't work, that's not a good sign. Really quickly, if these deposits are uninsured, that's one hell of a firewall. 
I'm telling you, actually, if the FDIC or somebody comes in and said, we'll make these guys whole, it doesn't have the effect that you're looking for. Right. You go in with $20 billion uninsured, it's one hell of a firewall. Well, you also have to wonder what the, the overall fallout, David, is going to be from all this in terms of the uninsured deposit threshold. And, you know, that ultimately is going to have to come from congressional approval, which seems a long way away, just given the nature of the relationship between the two parties in D.C. Yeah, I think you're right, because that comes up in every conversation, which is that seems to be where we're heading. But at the same time, politically, it may be very difficult to actually get something like that through. But that is what you continue to hear. Let's just make it an explicit guarantee of all deposits. Yeah. One thing, quite honestly, too, that, that hasn't led to overall, uh, you know, overly worrisome is that you haven't had to rely on Congress for any part of this yet, right? No. It's the Fed and FDIC, Treasury. And even here, this is in no way, shape, or form a bailout. This is just the yeah. organization of a group of, obviously, all the SIFIs, all the big banks, so to speak, and financial institutions saying, here, you know, here's some, here's some money yeah. uh, to put in your bank and deposit. And hopefully, the, you know, they probably are going to get some sort of rate, I guess, on it. I appreciate you coming down uh, and breaking this news. Absolutely. All right, that's David Faber. Um, his news report, obviously, moving shares of that stock. We'll keep our eye on the overall market, which has uh, clearly taken a leg up as well, I think, on uh, some of those concerns around First Republic being eased. Dow's good for 320. Um, let's do some final trades, guys. There's your, your live look at the, the big board up 321 on the Dow. NASDAQ's been the outperformer all day long as mega caps have been leading things to the upside, too. Um, what do we got? Let's do final trades quick. Josh Brown, what do you got? Uh, IEO, I like the energy space here. Prices have come down a lot. All right. Steve Weiss? 12-month treasuries, 4.3 yield. Why would you not do it? <laughs> Which Saperstein? Rockwell Automation. Uh, onshoring. All right. Brenda? Uh, Adobe just reported a great quarter, proving that they have a strong moat and are continuing to grow despite the environment and concerns that were out there. Jim Labenthal. Boeing, getting big orders, delivering planes. That's what I want. Faber sits here long enough. I may make him do a final trade. <laughs> You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.